0: The following message is from the 2017 IBCD Institute, Addictions, Grace for the Journey. The name of the workshop is Relapse, Biblical Prevention Strategies. My name is Mark Shaw, and I currently serve as a pastor and the executive director of Vision of Hope, Vision of Hopes of Women's Residential Ministry. We deal with addictions of all types, eating disorders, self-harm habits, and unplanned pregnancy. I actually have an adoption ministry attached to what we do. So we we connect women that want to place their babies with an adoptive family with families that we've already screened. And um, we help with the counseling process and just kind of help them along that path. It's really a rewarding part of what I do. Um, so, that's, that's a little bit about Vision of Hope. What's neat about Vision of Hope, it's not a standalone 501 501c3 ministry, though there's nothing wrong with that. But the reason I, I emphasize that, I really love the fact that we're tied together with the local church. So, the girls in our program don't have to come to Vision of Hope then go find a church. Many of them have families they can't go back to for lots of reasons, as you can imagine. So they have a church that they can already be a part of if they want to stay. Now, some go back to their local communities, and that's fine. We encourage that. But many stay right there in Lafayette, Indiana, in our church, and we're able to shepherd them and help them. So it's really, really a great... um, Great ministry to be involved in, and just for me, I mean, you'll hear me more tomorrow in the plenaries. But um, I've worked in addiction fields, the f- a variety of capacities uh, for 26 years. I hate to say that, I don't want to think that I'm that old, you know. But 26 years, wow. So I've been doing this a while. I've worked with zillions of addicts, probably more in the thousands range, but feels like zillions. You know, when you work with people who struggle with addiction, sometimes. Uh, and what Ed said in the first plenary is right on track with um, what you see in addiction. So we'll we'll talk about that in this workshop a little bit, and. Uh, and I'll, I'll explain a little more about Vision of Hope, that kind of thing, as we get into this. I'd like to start, really, with the Word of God, even ahead of prayer. I like reading the Word of God. I like God to speak to me first. Then I speak to Him. And Genesis 25 has an interesting section. Starting in verse 29, Of Genesis 25 is a little story just kind of thrown in there. When you read the whole thing, you kind of think, you know, the whole chapter before it and after it, you think, you know, kind of why was this in there? But it's in there for a reason. And then what I like to do is think about this particular passage of Scripture in the context of a relapse, all right? A relapse. So let's read the Word of God and then we'll pray. Starting in verse 29. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field. And he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright Me and Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Let's pray, Father. We thank you that your word is true, and we thank you that there's so much we can learn about who you are and about our own selves about how we can be faithful ministers of the gospel to those that suffer with all types of problems, especially as we look at addictions in this conference. Lord, we're reminded that you are the source of hope and you bring healing to the hearts of many. And we pray that you would help us now to learn more about you, more about ourselves, and how to help others. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, well, in this passage, it's, it's interesting to me. I mean, funny story. We keep uh, one of the pastors on staff's children every week or every other week. And, um, and my parents live with me. There's just a lot. You're going to have more questions than answers by the time I'm done here. You're going to be like, what is this guy? I mean, what is, what's going on with him? Um, <clears throat> but we have this little guy who comes over, and I think he's five now. And so my, my dad's in our house, and my mom, and, and he's, he's staying with this little guy, five years old. My kids are, my youngest is 14, have four children, and the youngest is 14. So the five-year-old's over, and he says, you know, I'm hungry. Well, his mom had already given us instructions not to give him anything to eat, because he'll, he'll eat constantly, you know, and he's so cute. I mean, he's just, if I'd have been there, I'd have given him something to eat, but that's just me, you know. I'd explain it to his mom later. But he, um, he's just so cute. And so he's manipulating everybody, you know. I'm really hungry, and I want to eat. And uh, my dad's there. My dad won't be manipulated. He's, he's hardcore, you know. He's like, well, you can't eat. And he goes, well, I'm starving. And you can die from starving. <laughs> and, and then my dad's, well, no, still you can't eat. But we say that around the house now, you know, I'm starving. And, you you know, you can die from starving. That's our our phrase. Well, I think of Esau, that's exactly what he said to Jacob. Uh, Let me eat some of that stew because I'm exhausted. I mean, I'm starving. You know, and Jacob says, sell me your birthright. Give me your future inheritance. You trade it all in for this one morsel of food. And Esau doesn't say, you know, this is my spiritual inheritance this is my identity this is my my future my financial package my you know he doesn't say any of that what he says is birthright smirth you know give me the soup i want to eat i want to eat right now and his focus is right here right now and his name's called edom which means red for the red stew And Jacob has him swear, and he swears his birthright, which, you know, in Esau's mind, this is kind of maybe not a binding type of thing. But what this reveals to us in Scripture is his heart. He despises birthright it ends with. And so we know that when the trickery comes in the next couple of chapters with his dad and Jacob, and how Jacob tricks his dad, and and Jacob means deceiver, um, we know that Esau really didn't care about his birthright anyway. And so he, uh, he swears to him, and he gets his soup, he eats, and he goes his way. And that to me is just a picture of what relapse is. It's that momentary decision to, uh, to partake in some addictive pleasure. So you'll see that in the clinical world, <clears throat> It's someone, and you have notes, someone who has attained, achieve, attained or achieved a significant period of sobriety, but then they go right back to their addictive pleasure, pleasure of choice. And when we think about relapse, I mean, the world uses, the clinical world uses a lot of terms that really sound good. They sound medical because they want you to believe that addiction is a medical brain disease. I don't know if you knew that, but that's what they want you to believe. That's the theory. It's not been proven fact, so don't buy into that, but that's the theory that uh, they propagate. And I don't have time to get into it, but what the clinical world teaches versus what the Bible teaches are very different things. The world's idea on relapse is that it's (coughs) fear-based. So you want to be afraid of a relapse. You want to do everything you can to avoid a relapse. You want to uh, go to 90 meetings in 90 days. You want to do, you know, Everything you can to avoid temptation. You got to watch this and watch that, and change people, places, and, and playgrounds, and and so forth. And and some of that's really good stuff. I mean, some of that's really good practical stuff. But the motivation behind it tends to be fear-based. You can't go back to your disease. And we know fear of God is good. Um, it, that's the one fear that is is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. A biblical approach for relapse is that we want it to be faith-based. So I work Vision of Hope. We have 26 beds for residents in our program. And those that struggle with addiction, I want them to be motivated by faith, faith in God and fear in God. But I really want them to be moving toward living in a way that they are enjoying the Lord. You know what I mean? By that, not just running from temptation, but running to the Savior. And I think that's the difference in the approach. So we won't graduate a lady in our program unless she is really walking with Jesus I mean that's the criteria. If we aren't sure and she's just not evidence showing evidence of that, uh, we won't graduate them. We just won't. We're not trying to pad our stats. We're not trying to impress anybody. We want our girls walking with Jesus, and we want them walking in faith, not by a fear or not by sight. And so you have Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it's p- impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists. Got to believe He exists first of all, right? And that He rewards those who seek Him. Then biblically, a relapse is a voluntary choice to return to enslavement. It's a voluntary choice. 2 Peter two twenty two. What the true proverb says has happened to them, the dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. And so that's the ugly picture of what a relapse looks like. And a relapse is, uh, it never happens by accident not something that's just a momentary slip up. I mean, it it looks that way, but it always displeases God. It often hurts other people too, and it doesn't occur in isolation. It's prompted by failing to flee from the devil, and really they could die. People can die from going back to this, especially with what they're mixing with the, uh, the opiates nowadays. You know, fentanyl is what killed Michael Jackson and Prince, they mixed that with the opiates they were taking. Um, But there's even something out there called carfentanil, which is used to tranquilize elephants. Not horses, not donkeys, but elephants. And it's floating out there and they're mixing that with it. And they say it's 10,000 times more potent than than morphine. 10,000 times more potent than morphine. In fact, I think in Cincinnati area, I was just over there recently teaching, they had 174 overdoses in about a three-day period over a weekend. 174 people overdosed. Eight of them died, but they were able to revive a lot of them with with Narcan. And they used that, but sometimes they have to use several of them to even get them, you know, get them out of it, which is unbelievable. So uh, it's it, it's out there, it's scary, you know, and with the dark web and, and all that. Are you guys familiar with the dark net, the dark web? Familiar with that? No? I'll mention it a little bit tomorrow, but basically there's a web browser that you can get that doesn't trace the IP address. So dealers can deal without being traced and buyers can buy without being traced. Um, it's a very thing to think about because nobody can catch anybody and drugs can be that much more prevalent so that's that's kind of what's out there and then worldly terms associated with relapse what I like to do is kind of and even in the book there's a book up there relapse biblical prevention strategies I know they're selling it down the bookstore Steven, Steve Yu told me it's 25% off. And they're selling that book. It's my book. And what I try to do is contrast the world system with uh, biblical words and biblical terminology and kind of show the difference of that. And so that's kind of what I'm doing here. But worldly terms associated with relapse are that you know, there are warning signs and triggers. You know, what triggers it? And some of these words are, are pretty good. Some are not as good. But I, I like biblical terms because I like to use temptations to sin. I don't deal with it as a disease. I deal with it as a heart problem, a sin nature problem. So they have got to learn what tempts them to sin. What, what are they drawn to? What are they wanting? It's deeper than just changing behavior, right? Well you can change people places and playgrounds that's good. But you got to figure out what is it that drives me to this. Ed talked about it some in the first plenary about shame and we'll look at it more in the plenary I'm doing tomorrow night. And then guarding your heart. Guarding your heart rather than biblical I'm sorry rather than relapse prevention strategies I want to teach them how to guard their hearts. I got to do this with my Voh girls, my Vision of Hope girls, all the time. They tend to fall in love with the first boy that gives them attention, right? I mean, because let's face it, I'm the only guy around there, and I'm married, happily married, and you know, and I'm their pastor. But when they find a boy who will give them attention, um, you know, we can lose them. Boom, they're gone. And they have to learn to guard their hearts. And we really want to teach kids this anyway about giving your heart away. I mean, today, I mean, kids equate sex with uh, love and sex, you know, with a, a loving, almost a marriage, you know, where they live together. And sex and love are not the same thing, you know, sex is different than that. And so guarding their hearts, Proverbs 4. Just verse 23 says, Keep your heart or guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. From the heart flow the springs of life. So you have to guard that. If the springs of life are flowing from it, you have to guard it. You have to be careful with who you fall in love with, with who you entrust, with who you tell your secrets to, right? And so temptations to sin... And guarding your heart. Those are biblical terminology, just differences that I would like to use in my counseling and encourage you to use rather than the worldly words. We, we have a bad word at Vision of Hope that I don't let the girls say. And I'm going to say it for you here because I think we're all adults. I don't see any children here, although you guys back there look young. Um, uh, yeah, right there from uh, uh, Phoenix. Yeah, the young man from Phoenix but a bad word that I don't allow the girls to say is panic attack. Panic attack. That's a bad word. That's a curse word. Mm-hmm. Panic attack. Panic attack. That's a bad word. Because what I want to teach is I don't want a girl saying, I'm having a panic attack as though this thing is coming on me, this disease, this attack. What I say is, <laughs> You're having unbiblical fear. You're thinking unbiblical thoughts. You're, you're thinking in a way that you're provoking fear in your own heart. And therefore, you're having shortness of breath, the, the physical panic attack. But they want to act like it's a disease that comes on them. That's the addiction thing. It's like it's a, a disease that's coming on me. It's attacking me. Rather than I'm the one to blame. I'm the one who needs to change. So you want to encourage your counselees to not be passive, but to be active in what's going on in every way. Because they'll think like victims. We'll talk about that in a minute. So with relapse, some homework examples, list the temptations. What are the people, places, and things? Make a list to put on alternatives. But bigger than that, you want to get into the heart. I love Ephesians 1, 15-23, because particularly in the middle three verses of 17, 18, and 19, you see the, the prayer in Ephesians 1, uh, Paul's asking for three things. Look at verse, we'll start in verse 17. Well, let me read 15. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord, the Lord Jesus, and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Here's verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him. So I want my counselees praying for a spirit of wisdom, revelation, I want them to know God. And I, you know, I'm overwhelmed many times when I sit down and counsel. Even though I've done this for 26 years, and biblical counseling, the last half of that, I get overwhelmed, and I have to pray, Lord, please open their eyes. I can't convince them to be clean and sober. I can't give them the motivation. They're not going to do it for me for very long. I can, I can get them maybe for a few minutes. I can get them for a few days. To, I could encourage them certainly but I can't change the heart. I'm not powerful enough. And then verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So I want enlightened eyes in their hearts. I want them to see things with discernment that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? So a little bit on future, a little bit on identity. In this verse, Uh, this is important for them to understand. And then verse 19, And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might? In other words, His power in us is stronger than any hurricane, than any blizzard, than any any storm of life. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. So the same power that raised Christ from death to life lives inside of me and inside of you. How glorious is that, right? Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So just homework to teach them how to pray, pray the scriptures, pray with their eyes opened, and ask for things that are biblical. Rather than asking, you know, sometimes I think I always tease my girls of Vision of Hope, because so, sometimes I think we wake up in the morning we pray, Lord, We don't pray these exact words, but this is our heart. Lord, today, wrap me in bubble wrap so that I don't even stub my toe, that I might not get hurt, that no one would, you know, that nothing would ever bad would happen to me. And we pray that way, which is not always God's will, right? God will allow us to have some suffering. God wants us to experience need for him doesn't want me just comfortable in my own uh, gifts and abilities. He wants me to need Him. He wants me to walk by faith. I mean, think about how many times in your life, how how much do you walk by faith, even today? I mean, our meals are paid for. How much do we walk by faith today? How much do we have to depend or trust God? And maybe some of you are going through some deep waters and you had to a lot. The girls of Vision of Hope, they have to a lot. They have verse cards. They'll pull out verse cards. This is amazing. 20 or 30 verse cards in their pocket, and they're just reading Scripture, and they're having to think on truth because they've been raped by their own father. They've been ridiculed and mistreated. You know in Christianity if we don't take care of women I mean what are, what are we about Jesus took care of women and uh, it's it's a real uh, burden on my heart to help these ladies and so they have verse cards they we have to help them to think on truth and not want to believe lies and some of them go over and clean the community center and they see boys that they hung out with and did bad stuff with and they want to go back to those guys in those moments because they're believing a lot right? Well, this is fun. This is good. I can't, I can't wait. I want to be with him. I want to see him. He'll, he'll, maybe he'll love me this time. And you know, and those things aren't, aren't true in many cases. So, lots of ways, lots of ways we can give homework. And then counseling questions. What is it about your drug of choice that you enjoy? What is your weak point in a temptation? You know, where are they weak? And then gospel emphasis point. I always like to drive home the gospel in everything we do, that they know how to, that they know God and learn how to trust Him. You know Proverbs three five through eight. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. And so, recognizing when am I operating in my strength, in my belief, versus when am I learning to trust God? And then we have to emphasize the nature of our own hearts and the nature of Christ. One of the problems I think, you know, this is such a sensitive topic, everybody's going to be mad at me by the time I finish this, but that's all right. I'm not trying to make new friends. I've got one friend, and that's all I need. <laughs> um, celebrate recovery. One of my problems with celebrate recovery is, and I'm not Mr. Critic, because I, mean, I need to be critical of me before I'm critical of anybody else. And, but celebrate recovery teaches that you've got to love yourself, you've got to forgive yourself, In order to begin helping and serving other people. And that's just not true. In fact, self-love is our problem. That's the addict's problem. They love themselves too much. And so we have to help them to love Jesus and to love others, but they don't have to have as a prerequisite love of self, self self-esteem. Part of their problem is they love themselves too much. That's why they're willing to do some of the things that they've done. And we want to teach the difference between conviction and condemnation. Conviction and condemnation. There's conviction for a Holy Spirit filled believer. There's not condemnation for a Holy Spirit filled believer. A believer is not condemned. Jesus took on their condemnation. So what they're feeling when they want to change or they feel guilty about something, if it's truly something that they that the Holy Spirit is working on, that's conviction to help them to change into the likeness of Christ. It can come through suffering, it can come through all types of, of different ways, but it's meant to be loving and progressive and helpful into the transformation of Jesus Christ likeness. Condemnation is for unbelievers. Now, here's a glorious thought. You and I, if you're a believer here tonight, will never see the wrath of God poured out on us directly. Isn't that great? That you will know, help you sleep tonight if you're not jacked up on coffee and caffeine uh, like I am. Um, <laughs> we will never see God's wrath poured out on us we'll see it poured out on others who aren't trusting and believing, but we won't see it poured out on us. So that's condemnation. That's not what a Christian feels. But you know what? Sometimes people feel condemnation. Had lunch with some people we're discipling, my wife and I, a couple we're meeting with, and she asked about it and said, you know, they feel bad. And I said, well, they should feel bad. They're going to hell. You're talking about an unbeliever. They really are under condemnation and they should feel that shame but it's designed to bring them to repentance. And that's our job, right? To point them to you know what? You feel this way but I got I got a remedy to tell you about. And it's in the person and work of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so I, you know, when our girls leave the program in rebellion, many times they they leave, we don't dismiss. I I don't dismiss very many people. So like I'm out of town this week, obviously here in California, and they're probably dismissing people left and right, you know, because they know when I'm in town and you run it by me, I'm not going to dismiss them. I don't know if I'm a teddy bear, what you want to call that, but I just don't dismiss people if I can help it. I mean, if they're putting someone in harm's way, that's one thing. But I typically don't dismiss people. So they leave in rebellion, though. They say, I'm done. I want out of this. I, I don't want to be here anymore. And when they do, we have a policy, and it's pretty tough. It's a six month blackout. So for six months, we tell them, Don't contact us. We won't contact you. Don't Facebook us. Don't contact our residents. Don't contact our interns, our staff. You know, you can come to church here, that's fine. But when you see us, just say hi and bye and move on. No deep conversations. I mean, we can be polite. But we have a six-month blackout rule. And the reason for that, we want them to feel the weight of their choices you know, when they go. We're not trying to relieve them from suffering or make it easier for them. And we certainly don't want to bring the girls that are in the program down by them communicating with someone that we deem to be a rebel. To be a fool, a biblical fool. So why would I want my girls in the program who are trying to learn a new way, talking to a girl that they were close to, but who's now saying, I want to live in rebellion. I I don't want her talking to her. So we have that six-month rule. Seems kind of hard sometimes to people who don't understand maybe the nature of a residential program, but it is uh, very important. And you don't want to rescue people from consequences, don't rescue them. All right. Now, everything that it's all it, it, that relapse hinges on, I believe, is relationship. And, and everything biblical counseling is, it's relationship. I'm relating to them, they're relating to me, we're relating to God. And I love the whole fact of relationships in biblical counseling. You know, I love being a pastor and shepherding people and helping them. I mean, that's a thrill. But relapses always demonstrate a break in intimate fellowship with God. You know, Galatians 5.16 says, Walk by the Spirit and you will not. Look at that. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of flesh. So a girl leaves in rebellion. She's walking in the flesh. Guess what I know about her? She's not walking in the Spirit. At least in that moment. She's choosing to walk in her flesh. A lack of love for God in that moment of sin. That's what relapses demonstrate. They don't love God in that moment. John 14, 15, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Well, in that moment, they're not loving God more than they're loving themselves when they relapse then a relapse always demonstrates a reliance upon self rather than Christ. I know if they've relapsed, they were trusting in themselves, trusting their own strength, their own ability. And then it also relapse demonstrate a relational disconnection. Proverbs 18.1 is so interesting to me. I wrote a blog about it. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Think about that. What do you hear about shooters and uh, killers and bombers? And, you know, the neighbors always say, he kind of kept to himself. We never really saw him much. He was a nice guy because he didn't bother us. We never heard from him. That's typically what you, you see. And they do it in isolation. And they break out against all sound judgment. And the Bible warns us about that. So what do we need in addiction counseling? We need community. Where do they find that? Do they find that in AA? They find some fellowship in AA. But what do we want to steer them to? How about a local church? How about they have dinner with a family? They've never seen a man love his wife in a godly way. They grew up in a home where mom was beaten by dad and dad molested little sister or whatever. And so how about we get them in an uncommon community called the church, the believers, and get them involved in that and help them to see that rather than have them isolated, (coughs) which is dangerous, they'll end up breaking out against all sound judgment. So relational disconnection is what you see. And the big thing, you guys are probably going to hear some of this repeated in my, uh, in my workshop tomorrow night. But um, that's okay. You can just skip that one. No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. Don't do that. It's a joke. Um, knowing God is a big part of what we do. And we meaning all of y'all in this room. I'm from Alabama. In Alabama, we say all of y'all. So, everyone say that. All of y'all. All All of y'all. It's all of y'all, but it's all of y'all. So, all of y'all. I don't know how to help you do that phonetically. But um, knowing God is the deal for biblical counselors. We don't trust who we don't know. And special revelation has been given to us of God, of Christ, from the Word. So, The thing I think about when I'm counseling a girl who comes in a vision of hope, I'm not going to sit down with her on day one and say, okay, you need to know Jesus. All right, I need you to repent and trust in Jesus right now. Then we'll start biblical counseling. Is that what I do? No. Now I know she needs Jesus and I know she's lost usually. Not all of our girls are lost, but many are. So, what do I do? Well, I begin to disciple her. I begin to, well, not true discipleship because she's not a believer yet, but I begin to open the word to her. I begin to show her who God is. Because if I told you guys, all of y'all in here, take your wallet or take your purse, go down to uh, Costco, find the most hideous looking person you can find. In your estimation, give them your purse, give them your wallet, say, I'll be back in about six hours to pick this up. Would you do that? If I told you to do that, you would not do that, right? Tell me you wouldn't obey that command. Okay, good. All right, you're good. Um, You wouldn't do that. Why? Because the person you're seeing, you don't know them. And by what you can see, they look kind of hideous in your whatever you think of that. You you wouldn't trust them. Well, that's what a vision of Hope Girl coming in to the program thinks of God. He's hideous. They don't see His beauty. They don't know Him. All they know is He allowed people to hurt me. So, the joy that I have is to get to teach them about who God really is, how He really looks, and that He can not only be trusted with their purse, but with their lives. That's the joy of biblical counseling for me. And it's all there in special revelation. And one of the things we do for homework is to list out thankfuls. Now, where does this fall in with relationships? Well, usually you're not just thankful for the car you drive and the toaster and those kind of things. You're thankful for people you're thankful for um, the help that you get. We had a girl who was in our program for three years said she wrote out 30,000 thankfuls. We do thankfuls every day. They write out at least 20 to 30 things they're thankful for. If you do the math, it's right around, if you do 30 a day, it's right around 30,000, a little more than that. Now Imagine writing down 30,000 things that you're thankful for over a three year period. You know, we should be thankful for way more than that. But that's the way you cultivate love for God and gratefulness. And and gratefulness is what I listen for when I, you know, when somebody's relapsing. When I'm counseling and they say things like, they're complaining about the food. We had a girl who complained about the food, and we have end-of-shift reports, and I was reading the report, and it said, you know, Susie Q complained about the food today, wasn't happy about it, da 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 And I, t- I emailed everybody on staff because I thought it was a teachable moment, and I said, she's on the road to relapse. Well, uh, next day she left. Boom, gone, and left in rebellion, didn't dismiss her. She left, found a boy. Surprise, surprise. And... Uh, And a a couple weeks later, an intern said, Pastor Shaw, when you wrote that email saying she's on the road to relapse and she was just complaining about her food, she said, I thought you were crazy because she said, you're just making and, and, and I'm crazy. She was right about that. But she said, I thought you were just making a big deal about nothing. And that's what I listen for. That's what you as a counselor need to listen for. If they're complaining about anything, because what do we deserve? Do we deserve nothing? No, we deserve something. And it's a hot, hot place, right? Four letters, H-E-double hockey sticks. That's what we deserve. We don't deserve nothing. We deserve hell. And anything short of that, we need to be thankful. We're not going to see God's wrath poured out on us. It was poured out on Jesus. So when I hear unthankfulness, even in my own heart, it's time to to get that in check. And you need to listen out for that as a sign of, uh uh-oh, they're not in the right place. Proverb of the day is just reading whatever. I don't even know what today is, the 20 something, 22nd, 30th of June, something like that. Whatever day it is, you read that proverb. What is it, 22nd? Am I right? <laughs> 22nd. Our flight was canceled when we came out here. And ever since then, I've just been off. I'm like, what day is it? My daughter's with me. And, you know, I'm like, what is today? Where are we? Uh, anyway, flight, don't have your flight canceled. will throw you off. Um, I didn't have any power over it. But reading the proverb of the day, I just love proverbs to develop a heart of thankfulness and, and wisdom that you can use practically to help reveal the relationship, the, the power of God. And then counseling questions. Can you see God's hand of redemption, His redemptive power in your life, even though you've made some bad decisions? Can you see where God did good in that? That's huge. To me, that's where boys become men and girls become women, is when they can learn about suffering and recognize it and praise God for it. <clears> then <throat> you see the gospel points there knowing others intimately. Some people mistakenly think that once you become a Christian, sin is no longer a problem, but we still need a community. And that's where AA does a lot of things right. I mean, they're helping people have community. Uh, They're helping them to experience a place of safety and a lack of shame, right? Because everybody in there has a shameful story why they're there. So there's no shame. And it is very effective in in that way. Now there are studies out that say less than 6% of People were sober in AA for an 18 month period. So don't think that AA is all that in a bag of chips because less than 6% of people stayed sober for 18 months. I'm not here to bash AA, but I'm here to tell you that God's truth and God's church is an unknown resource to those who struggle with addiction. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5 7 through 11. And it's because we punted on first down, right? The church gets an addict in their church, and like a football team, it's first down, 10 yards to go, and the coach calls in, punt the ball, first and 10, punt the ball. Now, now, where are we here? Who, what, I'm from Alabama, so Nick Saban is kind of a big deal in Alabama, I don't know if you know that. He could be governor <coughs> quite easily. But Nick Saban, if he punted against Auburn on first down, every time he got the ball, what do you think would happen to Nick Saban? He'd be fired by halftime, right? Halftime. And they love him. He could be governor, but he'd be out of a job. Because you don't punt the football on first down. You punt on fourth down, but the local church is punting on first down with drug addicts. We're afraid to work with them, and we just punt them to the other team, which I think sometimes is Satan, and we're punting them to the other team because we're afraid. And if we do that, I mean, is God pleased with that? We need to try to help them. Now, obviously, we're not medical people. We're not talking about the medical problem of the drugs and withdrawal and detox and that kind of stuff. But we're talking about the heart issues, and we're talking about showing people love who hold and carry a lot of shame. So don't put on first down. You can put on fourth down, that's fine. But you can go for it on fourth down too. And that's always exciting, right? Unless you're in your own territory. Okay, we won't get into football. You can tell I work with girls, right? I don't get to talk football. So it comes out of my workshop. Okay. Verse, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 7. First Thessalonians 5, 7. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for our helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, these are talking to believers, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. It's relational connectivity. It's relational connectivity. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. And the addict needs that every single day, two or three or four times a day, especially in the beginning. Daily encouragement, momentary encouragement about this connectivity we have with Christ. And accountability is good. Submission is even better. We want to teach our people to be accountable, but we also want to teach them to be submitted. Submission is willing. It's a willful act. They're placing themselves underneath their authority willingly. And they're saying, you know what? I've made so many bad decisions. Help me. I'll do what you, you say. And I always say this. Submission always has a human face. Submission always has a human face. A lot of people run around, I'm submitted, I'm submitted, I'm submitted. And their boss says, go sweep the floor. And they say, I'm not doing that. (laughs) That's beneath my pay grade, buddy. And they quit, or they walk out, or they get fired. They should get fired, right? But submission always has a human face. So who am I submitting to? Who is that human face? Picture that person in your mind, because none of us are created kings of the universe. There's only one one person that filled that role. That was Jesus. And even he submitted to the Father, not my will, but your will be done. He modeled it for us. So how dare we think we're the king of the hill. And then transparency, not hiding, not deceiving, not have truths. We've had girls leave the program. Relapse, come back to move in the Vision of Hope, to start over, day one, phase one, day one, we call it. We have three phases. And they come in the program, they start over, and then they still deceive us. And we say, what are you doing? We gave you a chance. We already know the jig's up. Confess, let's start fresh, let's be transparent. <clears throat> but it's just a, a culture, a way of thought. You have to confront it homework examples. There's a sermon there. There's one of my books. There's a daily devotional book, easy to understand. Then some counseling questions. What is eternal in your life? Who speaks the truth in love to you? When was the last time you heard the truth in love? When was the last time you spoke the truth in love to someone else? I would encourage you too, and you do counseling, do it in teams of two. You don't have to go one-on-one with somebody. In fact, dealing with addicts, they're good at deceiving you. They're good at telling you what you want to hear. Bring a partner along. And I always suggest a truth teller with a grace giver. It's kind of how God marries up people, doesn't it? I mean, you could probably think about your spouse and think, boy, truth teller, you know? <laughs> we never think our spouse a grace giver. <laughs> truth teller. I'm the grace giver. She's the truth teller. That's kind of how most people think. Um, <laughs> and then she thinks the same thing of us, you know. He's the truth teller. I'm the grace giver. But be that as it may, truth and grace are great working together. And I love counseling in teams of two. Uh, I'll, in Birmingham, Alabama, we started a ministry. I shared this before we started. But real quick... We had uh, three counselors, two sessions on a Friday afternoon. This was March 28th. And a year and a half later, we were going crazy. We were in five locations, different churches, a medical office. Um, it was really neat what God was doing. And I, I called our office manager. I said, How many sessions? How many counselors? Said, We have now 56 counselors because of the team model, everybody working with a partner. 56 counselors. This is a year and a half after we started. We have 83 sessions in five locations. 83 sessions, 56 counselors. People loved the way we did counseling in teams of two. I mean, think about it. You're not sitting in there one-on-one wondering. You've got a partner. You can pray for them while they're counseling. You can give counsel. You can kind of popcorn counsel and encourage each other. It's really a good method, and especially for addiction. So I would encourage it. then identifying enemies. You know, we have three enemies, Satan, the world system and our flesh, but we have three weapons that have overcome each one of those. Can you think about that for a minute? The first enemy Satan, what weapon has God provided to defeat Satan? It's Jesus. Jesus defeats Satan, right? I saw Satan fall like like I mean Satan is not my problem. I mean, he's a problem, but he's not my major problem. <coughs> The capital S Satan is probably not all that concerned about Mark Shaw. Let's just put it that way. Mark Shaw is Mark's biggest problem. But the world system, what did God give us to defeat the world system? He gave us the truth, the Bible. Because the world system are lies. Things that, you know, alcohol's fun. You're going to have more friends. You're going to party. ACDC, we're going to have a party in hell. And, you know crazy lies but we have the bible we have truth to combat that enemy and in our own flesh what do we have for that holy spirit amen to to walk in the spirit not in our flesh but that's our most difficult one right because we can quench the holy spirit by walking in the flesh that's why we need each other If you're counseling and telling people to do it themselves and pick themselves up by the bootstraps and love themselves more, you're probably not doing biblical counseling. Because you have to say, you know what? Doubt yourself. That's what Proverbs 3 said, right? Do not lean on your own understanding. Be not wise in your own eyes. I mean, that's telling you to doubt yourself. I tell my girls, I said, your first impulse is wrong most of the time because you're wanting to do something, you got to find out, okay, first impulse, wrong. What is that? What's that lie? Announce the lie. This is what I'm believing. And then renounce that lie with truth and replace it with biblical truth. And have to help them to do that constantly. But they need people to help them. So this isn't just you can do it yourself. Examples of self-deception... I can do it one time, won't have any consequences, so make me happy. We want to root out self deception of the sin of trusting in ourselves more than we trust in Christ and His Word. So, trusting God is the key. And it brings healing and refreshment to your bones, doesn't it? That's what it said. So, how do we fight? Get through that. How do we fight temptations or triggers? First thing to recognize, appetites remind us that, we're inf- that we are finite, limited, and dependent upon God. You're a dependent creature. And your appetites remind you of that constantly. I don't have time to get into it, but I get into it more in Heart of Addiction about appetites and replacing wrong appetites you know, appetite for sweets rather than appetite for fruits and vegetables, right? You have to replace that. That's what a diet does. You don't just quit eating, you know, just fast. You eat better food. You eat the right food. And in time, you develop a taste for fruits and vegetables. So appetites can be, they're, they're God-given, but we can also train them. Then there's spiritual appetites, everybody's worshiping something. They're either worshiping God, their creator, the one true God, or a false God. And all that is for self. And then there are cravings to deal with when we counsel people struggling with relapse. Cravings are legitimate, diagnostic, physical phenomena that come from the excessive fulfilling of natural appetites. So when you remove... The thing that they love, there's a craving for it. And it's physical. It's real. You know, your body stops making certain things when you take drugs into your system. And then when you take those drugs away, your body hasn't made that, and now you're craving it. You want it. You need it. Or so, so-called so need it. But you, at some point, they've got to get through that. Then the physical component of addiction is... Real addicts do need detox. They do need detox. But once they detox the flesh and its lust, are there problems that the biblical counselor addresses? I mean, a lot of people quit smoking, right? For months, years, you go right back to it. A lot of people quit heroin. They get through the withdrawal, the physical part. They go right back to it years later. <coughs> So it's not just this physical thing and it's letting their guard down and not being diligent. And God's grace empowers us to overcome the addictive tendencies of our hearts. Then there's some passages I'm going to unpack Proverbs 23 for you so we're not going to do that but I love Ephesians 5:18 to 21, Ephesians 4:17 to 24. Then you see some others there listed Isaiah 44:9 to 20. What's interesting about this one, I'd encourage you to read it. The tools are crafted by the idolater. They're designed to please self. The tools are cocaine, self-harm habits, eating disorder. That's the tool used to carve out or create the idol. Because the idol is what they really want. Comfort, control whatever that thing is does that make sense so the cocaine is really not the problem you got to go deeper Ezekiel 14 Galatians 5 I've already mentioned and you have that all in your notes so I'm going to click like crazy you know it's midnight my time I'm surprised I'm still alive Um, build walls of protection this is practical applications homework Build walls of protection to practice self-control. Proverbs 25, 28, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Right? I mean, he or she is easy prey. When I think about the the three enemies, too, the devil, the world, and our flesh, think about it this way. I love this analogy. Friend Bill Hines uh, taught me this. He said, you know, Mark, the devil and the world system are not what defeats us. Our flesh defeats us, but it's like a bank. And the only way the flesh gets into the bank to rob the bank is if the devil and the world system unlock the back door because it's an it's a I'm sorry, I'm getting this all mixed up. The, the flesh, I'm sorry, scratch that. Let's uh, delete that. I'm getting it mixed up. The flesh is the inside man that unlocks the door for Satan and the world system to get in. They can't get in without your flesh. That, that's the point. Sorry, Bill, I butchered your thing. Um, <clears throat> but the, um, your, your analogy. So you think about that. Your flesh is what unlocks the bank door and allows the robbers to come in. That's why we battle our flesh more than anything else. And then, we won't get into it, but in Lot's progression into sin, you can write this down in your notes. The word looked, you see that in the parentheses up there? Looked, set up tent and in the gate of the city. The looked part is Genesis 13, verse 10. (coughs) 13, 10. So Lot lifts up his eyes and he looks and he sees a beautiful place and he wants it. Then thirteen, I think it's actually fourteen two, as far as uh, thirteen. I'm sorry, <laughs> man. It's midnight where I'm from. Did I tell you that? I got an excuse. I got a load of them. I can give you excuses. (laughs) I stay up to midnight a lot of times, so I I shouldn't really. It's the California heat. It's got to be something. Can't be me. All right. Lot's progression into sin from Genesis 12 to 19. It's in 13:10. He looked and he sees what he wants. Then, when you read about Lot in verse 12 of chapter 13, he sets up his tent. So it's 13.12. Then the next thing you see is in the gate of the city, 19.1. So he looks, he sets up his tent, he moves into the city, and then in chapter 19, verse 1, he's in the gate of the city. What that means is he's the mayor. He's a councilman now. He's a leader in the place where at first he just looked. He set up his tent close to and he progressed, and he moved in, and now he's a leader. And you see the progression, I think, of sin. <coughs> and then I have there in your notes the D list. We won't go through that, but you see every D there. And you can walk your counselees through that. Hopefully that's a real practical thing for you to uh use with counselees. You know, what tricked them? Where was doubt? This is identifying the lie and breaking it down, the distortion, denial of God's Word, denunciation of God, dwelling on the lie, disobedience, disguise, and disgrace. And Brent Oakwood, one of the pastors on staff with me, developed that. And Heather Starkweather works with me at Vision of Hope. Uh, uses that with our ladies, and I, I really like that. So you can develop your own. It's just ways to get people in Scripture and thinking about all the elements. And then in counseling interactions, you have to confront unbiblical language. When you hear the wrong thing, you have to confront it. When I hear panic attack, I have to confront it. In love, I don't love, like to do it. want people to like me, but I've got to confront it. And then you want to listen for a passive voice and confront that. People say things like, we fell out of love. I do a lot of marriage counseling. We just fell out of love, Mark. We just fell out of love. No, you thought unloving thoughts. You said unloving things. You know, when they fell into love, they were saying, oh, He's so cute when he smiles, and I like the way he does this. And they're saying the right things to fall into love. But when they fall out of love, they're they're really saying hateful things. And if you get to divorce, divorce is a lawsuit, and it is a violent act. Uh, So this is not something that just passively happens. Aaron said to Moses, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me. I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. You know, just magically came out. And so we want to use biblical terms like pride rather than ego, drunkenness rather than alcoholism, and teach the power of habits. Teach the power of habits. You know, just like you have a wrong habit and you've learned and it's been a spiraling down staircase, you can learn the right habit and begin practicing that. And then your response can be one that's godly. But initially, your response is wrong. So I want to help them with that. But I want to help them to where they learn to respond with the right, in the right way. And then I won't go into all of this, but uh, it's in the relapse book and the addiction-proof parenting books that I've written but I listen for five Christ-like marks of a transforming addict, and you see them there, humble, giving, responsible, grateful, submissive, versus the other is the mind of an addict. And in those books, I kind of show you both of those. But ultimately, what we want to do with relapse is lead them to repentance. I love the kindness of God in Romans 2, 4. Do you presume upon the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Yes, you know, God's kindness that's meant to lead them to repentance. They're not getting it sometimes that God is being kind to them and they're uh, flushing it away. And Hebrews 12, 15, 17 is where we'll end. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God they're missing the grace of God, the mercy of God. They're missing the grace that he has for them. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. Who do we start with? Esau. Who are we ending with? Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. One choice Can lead to years of consequences. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, Esau was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So we don't want people to end up like Esau. We want to point them to the kindness of God and lead them to the grace of the throne of God for repentance so they can live a life free of fear of relapse, but begin living in faith. And I would encourage you, help your counselees to enjoy life, enjoy God, rather than run around saying, I can't drink, I can't drink, I can't drink. That won't motivate them. What they can do is they can have a relationship that thrives with God, with their spouse, and with others. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your word is true and that we are growing by grace ourselves. Help us to be faithful with the people that you bring across our paths, uh, pointing them to you. And Lord, we ask that your spirit would enliven their hearts, help them to know you, see you as who you are, and then begin walking in a new way, in a way that would glorify you and uh, be a blessing to your children and your people and and the community of people who are lost and bound for hell unless they repent and really trust in Jesus. So help us all to be ambassadors of the gospel, and we pray that in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Too late for applause. Copyright 2017, IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd dot org